and welcome to The Paper Crane, a podcast by Cozen the Clouds and the Misspent Youth Productions. My name is Kieran. I'm Steve. I'm Jack. And I'm Joe. Uh, this week, our guest is Ollie Howell. I'd, I'd, I'd never met Ollie. Um, he's, he's, he was a very nice guy. Yeah, I was disappointed not to do this one because he's a drummer like me. Much better drummer than I am. Yeah. much more skilled professional. I, I mean, <laughs> it was important to keep to you guys apart. We don't want you getting any ideas because he's gone on to do lots of other things. So it's important to keep you. Yeah, keep <laughs> separated all the time. I would have just got into some really niche drum specific chats. So it's probably a good idea that now I'm just listening to it now as a listener rather yeah. than being there to bore you all with that kind of stuff. Talk about paradiddles. <laughs> Listeners, this is what you're what you're about to hear is the dream codes in the clouds lineup. It's the same thing with a new drummer. <laughs> you, we would actually be much better if he was in the band instead of me. I, I'm I'm certain of it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you'll hear some Ollie Hal facts in a minute. I'm assuming the robot is just sort of booting up. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm going to do them this week. You what? don't know if you're going to do them this week. Well, does Steve no, want no, to no, hear no, them no. this week? He didn't, do he I want to hear them? Yeah, but you weren't. Do I have to run them past you first? Is this? Oh, is last he's still week, sour had... about last week. Yeah. Well, what happened? I, remind me what happened last week. Well, Apparently, a handful, a, is, a handful is is not enough for Steve. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, Kieran, you, you've got to keep it metric when it comes to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Quantifiable data is all I'm asking for. Sure, sure, sure. Quantitative, not qualitative. Uh, that's how. That's how Steve. Anyway, goes. that that little <laughs> inadvertent slight has passed into the from RAM into the hard drive. Of the <laughs> <laughs> so, do you just need Steve to like egg you up a bit, get the robot? Fired I, I've, up. I've Steve, been excited about the robot. It's, it's one of my favorite things. I mean, and also, podcast. Kieran. Let's face it. You've got a catchphrase. Molly Halifax. <laughs> <laughs> Composer, drummer and producer Ollie Howell has written music for multi-award winning films and international TV series and his work has been screened at film festivals globally. As a recording artist and performer, Ollie Howell has released two jazz albums and toured the world receiving critical acclaim. A protege of Quincy Jones, Ollie is also the only ever jazz recipient of a prestigious Sky Academy Art Scholarship and he's also an ambassador for the Youth Music Charity. Excuse me robot, are you talking about THE Quincy Jones? The Quincy yeah, not Jones. Just, not a Quincy Jones. The Quincy Jones. Ollie's a genuinely impressive dude, isn't he? Um, he also told us some stories that I don't think we're allowed to play on the podcast, but man, <laughs> there were some crazy stories told. He, he's got stories. Um, now, I'd like to hear a story, Kieran. Uh, it's a one word story from you, and I'd like that story to be yes. Have you listened to the Beatles play? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank Yay. you. Okay, well, we'll get into... We'll find out how Kieran now feels about the Beatles uh, after the show. Um, but yeah, Ollie is a cool guy. If you haven't heard of him, check out his music. Uh, if you're not a jazzer, and I'm not really a jazzer, he's made a, uh, a playlist for us, which is uh, in the link description to the podcast. We have a great chat with him. We talk about NFTs. We talk about the environment. He's got a mad story about his uh, rare brain disease that he had. Uh, Quincy Jones obviously comes up. Um, and he's a, he's a very nice guy. 
he's got great stories, and he's a very talented musician. To contextualise, this conversation starts by Steve commenting on his T-shirt, which says, uh, no music on a dead planet. Enjoy the show. project and we're trying to make it like have an environmental environmentally sustainable goals from the off like so whenever we do an international gig we're going to try and get every festival to pay like the carbon tax make sure like there's no plastic at all in the venues like no virgin plastic and stuff we're going to just go in go in high and like not compromise on anything and just see what happens probably won't so get good well well it will be an interesting experiment <laughs> at, at least won't it like we yeah we've done a few environmental things as as a band but then it sort of highlights your um hypocrisies of some of the things you've done earlier like well not least pressing to vinyl right yeah really really terrible process for the planet but then there's like a there's always a a balance you have to try and hit right yeah and like it's becoming sustainability is becoming cool so like i think people are wanting to jump on it more now and be like proud to say like oh i'm doing my bit and like a friend of mine did like a huge world tour and now he's just like carbon offset the entire thing through like money he's made since then um and then he he was gonna do like be part of this nft project and then people started saying how bad that was for the environment so now another friend of mine set up this huge new nft platform that's like completely sustainable uh, and just uses all uh, like servers and stuff that's running on green energy and it's it's like doing really well so it's it's like people want to do the right thing now whereas before you're having to just drag them kicking and screaming yeah i think i think it's um it's about sort of mass mindset isn't it like it used to be an odd thing to be like oh what's that singer in that band going on about between the songs was mm-hmm. you know preaching again <laughs> you know like but yeah people want to do the right thing like when you think of how sort of quickly nfts like burst onto the scene and then wasn't too long after that that people became aware of the environmental mm-hmm. side of it which which i hadn't even like thought of it because it's kind of a hidden effect yeah right? it was such a weird concept in the first place like well, to get yeah. to the next level of that is yeah it takes a certain amount of yeah cognitive willingness that i didn't have at the beginning but now i kind of understand a bit better i mean i mean would you mind giving me like uh you know the 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 dummies version talk to me like i'm thick about (laughs) nfts um from what i understand it's a digital product where you as the purchaser your details or your name whatever is baked into the code so you will always be the person that owns that originally so like if you if you buy like a van gogh piece of real artwork that was probably owned by somebody else and then you own it now but then if you sell it on there's no record that you have it maybe there's a little logbook i don't know i, I never actually buy valuable art myself surprisingly <laughs> <laughs> but i'm guessing the nft thing is like it's it was always you that owns this um right right so but i think it was a bit of a fuck you to the art world originally because it was just a load of 15 year olds like buying jpegs of like a shoe or whatever and just being like here's 15 million because you know my mummy's got loads of money or whatever um and now i think it's people are kind of thinking like oh well it doesn't have to just be for the really rich arty kind of snobby rich people it can be it can actually sell stuff that's like bespoke and unique but is at a reasonable price so like i know musicians are jumping on it now and selling like 
special one-off remixes or whatever which is mm. you know and you just sell it for like a normal price of what or you know price of what a cd would have been aware but and that makes a bit more sense sure i think does that make did i do a good i i probably butchered that i have no idea whether that's no, right i think so <laughs> but it's just it's it's a, the re, the thing that confuses me a bit because i sort of i think i kind of understood it when i heard that kings of leon were releasing uh, a song as an nft but then i heard that you could buy it like moments from nba games as nfts and so but when you own those nfts the footage is still owned by the nba so you can't monetize it really you just own the moment <laughs> so you don't own the footage of the moment you own the moment i don't understand see for me uh, that feels a bit like you know when you see those things where it's like do you want to buy a star and it's like that's, that's exactly star. what yeah. i think it is yeah <laughs> it's not <laughs> real estate <laughs> No, but there's but there's definitely ways you can like you know if we did if we were releasing a track and then there was a special one-off mix that you did that's like a mm. real tangible product yeah. that's like oh that's that's actually really cool and you can listen to it or you can see a piece of art whatever but yeah like an NBA clip that like you know NBC own or whatever that's like I don't understand how that's worth any anything that's backdated on it is it just wanders into this realm of just. Show, again showing off wealth just putting your name on it mm. isn't it that's the naming the star part of it like i can yeah, see yeah. like some new artists are going to think oh this is this is a really interesting new like realm to to go into and and they've started doing it now where um in the sort of in the, the purchase of it you agree to give a certain percentage of any future sales to the original creator right oh, so okay. You know, you start off, say if you start off, no one knows you and you give an exclusive song that only the owner of this NFT is going to have access to. Then you blow up and everyone wants to hear about you. And then this piece of music becomes worth millions. You know, it's not just then this bit, this stock to be traded around amongst a load of people that had nothing to do with hmm. creating it. I mean, the thing is, though, if you're giving away like a percentage point of like a record and it becomes a smash hit, there are like, you know, mixing engineers who only get one point of a percentage point or whatever. Oh, so it's, it's yeah. But I guess if you're funding it in the first place, perhaps if you're paying enough, it, it does make sense. I mean, I like the idea that you can truly have a bit more of a personal relationship with fans. It's a bit like you know that company Patreon. Yeah, yeah. Like that's such a great model of just like direct fan to artist. Like you can do whatever you want with it, and it's just the platforms there so you can communicate. And like if you can use NFTs like that, it's just going to be it's going to be incredible, and people can really. I, don't, I mean, I don't know whether it will be like, can you create this bespoke mix for me? Or whether we, we as the artists will say, this is here, do you want it? But it opens up a whole new world of like, whatever you can do. But I know like Junkie XL, you know him? He does like loads of film scores now. He's a DJ. He was doing like a 20 minute score for your life or whatever as an NFT. So that was like a private film score for you. So which is quite a cool concept. Um, if somebody was really into his music and wanted their own like theme, they can like do the washing up to whatever and like feel empowered. So, but why market that as an NFT and not just say? Well, it's a it's a neat way of doing it... it. Codes codes should stick to only fans. We'll just we'll do it all on there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Actually, I mean Patreon is it it seemed a bit too good to be true for me when I looked at it because Kieran and I were talking about it the other day and he researched the the percentages that they give to the artists and I, I was thinking a sort of on a on a sort of spotify level mm -hmm, and yeah. i came in pretty pessimistic and was we were pleasantly surprised by yeah how actually artist driven it is 
yeah, Patreon only take two percent of the artist's fee. Yeah. Wow, that is really good. Well, that's insane, isn't it? I'd, I'd forgotten the numbers behind it, but just you, you, you're thinking like Spotify, it's like the other way around, isn't it? I mean, not even that. But yeah, like well, yeah. I, I, I know mm. a couple of my ex-manager now works at Patreon, and um, he's always just been glowing about everybody who works there because they really do just care about the artists and making making mm. sure it's fair. Whereas, obviously, there are so many problems with streaming the way it's set up and how all the major labels did these, you know, deals and contracts before anybody ever knew what it was. And I guess they got they got burnt with the whole MP3 introduction thing because nobody believed it was going to take off, and then when Napster hit and whatever, LimeWire, all the record labels got so far behind. So now they're trying to jump ahead of everything. And I think with streaming, they got there first before anybody really knew the monetary, you know, exchange that was going to happen. And now we're finally seeing it. And it's like, I mean, it's, at least it's becoming more common for people to who are not even musicians to talk about. Like it's it's in the mainstream news now. They're debating it in like parliament and stuff. It's, it's got to change. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, there's any, any new frontier, it's hard for it to sort of, find its footing and the rules behind mm -hmm. it people will take advantage quick won't they how do you feel about and as the artist uh basically only giving a select amount of fans that can afford that option mm. to have your music because you mean... so i was so so i was discussing the day with steve it's if 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 a hundred of my favorite bands all had patreon and i was paying 20 pounds a month for example for their top tier mm. package that's an absolutely unsustainable fan environment <laughs> yeah. that I can live in. But from what I understand, you're only paying the extra money for like the, you're paying the Patreon bit to that art. It's just for the extra stuff, right? It's not just, so it's like if you want a one-on-one -on -one masterclass or if you want that, you, oh. don't, you I think it's only, I think from what I understand anyway, you still, they still release music and do all the normal stuff. It's just for like the extra BTS and, you know, yeah. crazy extra merch stuff or whatever. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in a in a perfect world, you'd be giving everyone the same thing, and there'd be a sustainable revenue stream that comes in as a result of that. But mm. it's just not possible right now, is it? Mm. The, the thing I really like about Patreon is that it's gonna hopefully uh, keep the big the big companies out of podcasts because the only I mainly hear about Patreon through podcasters who offer like additional episodes and things like that which means you know so joe rogan had the big spotify deal or whatever but i don't think that's going to be commonplace because it's just so easy for fans to con to contribute to their favorite podcasts without going through another business so this um this environmentally focused band or, mm -hmm. or project or whatever yep <laughs> call it, is does that also affect the kind of musical output or are those two um, separate no, they're separate. Um, it's a project I've been trying to do for like seven years or something. It's wow. been the longest I've ever worked on anything. And it's uh, it started with a collaboration between myself and a, a visual artist called CC Lu, who's Chinese and lives in the UK. And he does like incredible uh, digital visual shows. And he's an amazing like electronic music producer as well. And we were put together, like we both won this thing called a Sky Academy Art Scholarship like years ago, which mm. like gave you a load of mon money and like mentorship and stuff. Um, and we were doing very different projects. I was doing a jazz album. He was doing this crazy like project with Jaguar cars where he was making all these like digital crazy films. 
And somebody was just like, in fact, my old manager, Tom, was just like, you two should do something together. And so we put on this showcase at the Village Underground and there was no rehearsal. They were just like, just, you've got like five minutes. So Cece just set up this amazing, wow. like beat, like really industrial style Nine Inch Nails, amazing music with this light show and visuals. And I just like freestyle drummed along. And then we were like, shit, we should actually do something with this that's not like crazy and that's actually a little bit more musical and kind of thought out. So then we started writing music and it was fine, but I was still very early on like getting together with Logic and like, I, I just, I came from mm. an acoustic background. Now I like do film scores and like, I have to use Logic Pro Tools and plugins every day and I love it and I'm much quicker at it. But like mm -hmm. back then I was using like Logic pre-built sounds and like just very amateur right. stuff. So. We started We've writing all music. Been there. Yeah, We've right. All been. <laughs> um, so yeah, we we had this process of writing music for like a year, about six years ago. Kind of thought the music was cool, but didn't really know what to do. We knew we wanted to do uh, like it was me, him, and a saxophonist called Duncan Eagles, who's in my band. And so we knew we wanted it to be instrumental and have saxophone with effects, but not be jazz, not be electronic, be some kind of weird place in between all the genres that we love but like but also like nothing else we've ever heard and then we knew we wanted to have massive projections and visuals and I didn't even have like proper management at that point so I was just like I have no idea how this is possible it's not something you can do in the back room of a pub we need to kind of somehow jump tiers of like gigs so we basically had to just put put it on hold because we didn't know what the fuck we were doing and then we like picked up the music a couple of years ago and we're just like wow this sounds terrible <laughs> so then <laughs> we uh yeah, we went back to the drawing board and redid everything from scratch. And then we've both been so we've busy. All, we've, we've all also been there. I'm too. sure you can yeah, all yeah. understand. <laughs> it's not just like when you do a mix in the studio, then you listen to it in your car and you're like, oh, that's not good. Like this was like awful amateur, like teenager music compared to what we're making now. So yeah, we went back to the drawing board, did everything from scratch, everything custom built, loads of like pre like sounds that we spent ages cultivating and CC had loads of analog gear so we were doing loads of like drum programming and stuff and then we've kind of eventually now got we've got like an hour and a bit set together so we've got like one gig in Poland in December that's kind of our launch for the project and then we're just going to start thinking about releasing music but it's yeah it's been a long time coming it's amazing wow. how those little moments can spark something so significant and you know uh, casting over years of your life and also yeah. how your view of it can change because your face when you were talking about that first spark of that music was like, you know, I, I was thinking, yeah, I, I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. Then it's really shocking to hear you then say, oh, in the end it turned out to, you know, we have to go back to the drawing board on it. But it was good. Like we, we needed to go through that process because he, he comes from such a digital place and like he's very mm. newly learning about like harmony and about like musical terminology. I came from exactly the, I was only a jazz drummer at that point. I didn't, I mean, I knew harmony and like classical theory a bit, but like I didn't knew nothing about electronic music. And we both had to come to this point where we were continually learning. And he's still like a, a genius when it comes to the intricacies of like cultivating us the right sound or like saturating the right kick in just the right way and we're learning from each other and we're teaching each other and he'll just we think in such completely different ways it shouldn't work this partnership and yet we're because we're pushing each other into like outside of our comfort zones every time we send something back and forth 
it's just like makes me really creatively excited so I'll send him something that I think is like quite a cool kind of like laid back vibey like maybe some analog synths this has got an interesting vibe and then he'll send it back and he's done some kind of glitchy drum and bass percussion thing which I didn't intend but which is amazingly cool and then I'll like fuck around with his stems and then send something back and it's that constant thing of like one-upping each other of like but have you thought of this have you thought of this and for some reason it just like we get along so well and it really works and yeah I, I will probably in two years time listen back to all this music we we're just about to release and then think this is also shit and we'll do better but like you know but it's about that kind of chemical <laughs> reaction between the two elements you're bringing right yeah and, yeah exactly and what that does for you both as artists maybe even more than the the output the actual music that comes out of it as a whole yeah yeah so yeah, it should be it should be really interesting. The band's called Forest Rising, um, and I th- yeah, I think we probably won't have anything out for a little while just because we're going to make sure we plan plan the releases and do things properly. Because we, like I said, we spent so long on it now. I don't just want to put out a single and just like it get forgotten. You know, I want to actually have a a bit of a plan in place. Yeah. So so just to Absolutely. not to sort of re go over it, but the the environmental elements of that, then the the ethos philosophy behind it, that just comes as a separate issue. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, we're both, because um, we talk a lot as well between the two of us about stuff that isn't music and we have a lot of the same values and stuff. And we were talking a lot about sustainability and the music industry and and he is based in the UK now, but uh, is from China originally. And we may have like a load of stuff happening in China with the band. And so we were saying like, this is truly going to be like a, a project that we start touring around the world quite early on but then we also felt a bit bad because like if we're just racking mm. up all those air miles like initially it's yeah. um it's not a great way to be to be starting a project so then we were thinking well if we are going to do this if that's just a reality that we will be touring internationally which of course as musicians we all want to get back to as well we need to find mm. a way that we can do it and actually do it in the best possible way and and also like use the bands perhaps as a bit of a platform to like encourage lots of other people to to try and like find find the best ways to do it because it's it's something you can't really we could never afford to do when we were like starting out you know when you just you just do a, a gig because it's a gig and like a tour in Europe you're just like yeah fine well I'll do whatever and you never you don't really think about those things because you can't so mm. now I'm hoping we yeah like I say the the environment for all the venues and promoters and stuff feels like a good time to just put a, a line in the sand and just go like this is this is what we need to make it happen or else like don't worry about it sounds great like I mean it's 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 going to have to start from the artist's level, isn't it? You know, it's yeah, going to take totally. artists to kind of change the culture. Mm. I, I mean, it, it's it's true of so many elements of the industry, isn't it? That, you know, for example, just even proper financial support in some cases, it's the fact that there are bands or there are artists that obviously by necessity will jump at any chance there is. Mm-hmm. And then your sort of bargaining, collective bargaining power is is lost, and it's hard to make things better for the industry as a whole. Yeah. So yeah, like you know, you said at the start, oh yeah, we probably won't get any gigs from it. <laughs> you know, uh, it will take it will take bands being brave and making that step, make a little yeah. cultural shift. Well, it's a bit like like in the film and TV world, like people, the whole issue of like ownership and royalties is slowly starting to change for the negative because production companies and uh, and like streaming platforms and stuff are just saying like no i'll give you this fee you can do this film or this tv show but i'm taking all of your royalties and it's it's beginning to creep in more and more and like we we all as composers need to like just 
stand in solidarity and just be like, absolutely not. Like this, for, for many composers who just do film and TV, like relentlessly, all of those royalties, that's a, like a pension. That's that's their consistent income. Mm. That's when you, when you have a year where you just lose all the projects just by, you know, because that's what happens when you pitch. You need that coming. But it's difficult when you're emerging and there's always going to be somebody who's starting out where like this series where they're only offering you like a tiny amount of money and taking all your back ends and they just go like oh yeah well i'll do it because it's my big break but it, it, we need to kind of encourage everybody to just say no straight away and it did happen like i think the last year i believe it was the discovery channel group uh, whatever they call the big conglomerate that owns all of that tried to do that with not only all of their music going forward but they tried to say also all of our back catalog all of the shows all of the like home renovation shows all the food network shows we're going to take those royalties back and then there was such a uh, uproar from all of the composers standing together saying no you can't do this and they like respect them they backed down and said yeah you know what we were totally wrong we're not going to do that and we need we need just like stuff to happen more because that can happen with streaming too i feel like maybe it is maybe it's naive but maybe it feels like there is a shift there's enough big artists like kicking up a fuss to be like look this is you know you got paul mccartney saying the beatles wouldn't have been the beatles if we had to like you know deal with all these crazy yeah. streaming percentages and stuff so yeah i think it's with all these things, it comes from the people, the artists all standing together and just being as one and collectively kind of making a point, whether it's environmentally or streaming or royalties, whatever. Yeah. And then also, again, with the kind of Patreon model or just generally, generally that kind of direct to fans relationship, you could you can go in stating this is our philosophy as as an artist. We're going to be, is it it's so carbon new, neutrality? yeah from the start and then people can think yeah i want to get behind that and they can support that a little bit better totally i mean you already see it now like on packaging for like any new food or drink brands like especially in the uk like it's it's a big thing to be like this is 100 percent recyclable this is we're a carbon neutral thing it's people are taking pride in it and as consumers they're like oh yeah i'd rather buy that brand because that's that's better and maybe it's a bit of a trend and a fad right now i hope it's just the star of a new wave i feel like the generation below all of us are like way more clued up politically environmentally socially i think they're just going to be kind of leading the way and and yeah, yeah. we're just going to be a bit of a fairer society hopefully hopefully it's um, interesting you said about how you met um the people you're working with on that project because um sort of tracing back on your over your work you're working with other people in so many different kind of relationships like sometimes mm. you're composing directly for others sometimes it seems to be more of a lasting re relationship like I, yeah i forget the name now i apologize but the um saxophonist in duncan eagles yeah yeah so so you've worked with worked with him i mean i like i would guess well over a decade yeah uh, on and off but it's funny like it's i've always been inspired by like other other people more than I am by anything I can do like I I think the reason that I've branched out from like just playing drums to to playing lots of other instruments and trying to write music was because actually I get really bored when I'm just by myself all the time and like there was a process where I was in music college where I had to be practicing the drums like eight hours a day and then doing gigs and I did that solidly for like four years pretty much and, and then some afterwards and then some before. And like, I absolutely needed to go through that time. And I wish I had more time now to practice. But equally, I just went crazy. And it turns a lot of people off being at these conservatoires and music colleges because it's, it's like mm. so lonely. And so you get inside your head and you get so critical about yourself. And so like when I'm in a room with somebody else who, who's like 
inspiring me creatively like i say whether we're on the same wavelength or whether it's somebody who is thinking so far that way that i'm like yeah yeah i'll go there it's just it makes me want to learn more about what we're doing or like just do more of it so yeah when i meet somebody that's we just click then i want to keep that going for as long as possible i mean i also i mean i feel quite fortunate because I only end up working with people who I really like as a person and it's not always <laughs> that way especially when you're like assisting somebody or like collaborating on something mm. where it's you're doing it because the job needs to be done rather than you're choosing to initiate the project it can be you just have to put up with people but I I tend to just meet people and if we get along we end up working together and then ends up kind of sticking for a while yeah like I mean it's it's interesting to to me personally because I mean we yeah obviously individual members of of codes work with other people hence mm-hmm. hence us meeting you through through kieran mm-hmm. but um on the whole we've sort of gone with that model of just we formed this solid unit and we're sort of pretty impenetrable we we, we just when i think about my musical output i think of it through the lens of of codes mm. and working with these same same few other people you know so it i just sort of wonder about what that that process is when you're when you have so many other new areas to go with with other people with other you know new projects with this person with this person well i think yeah I, I think i have a really short musical attention span i very rarely by the time I finish something, I usually end up not liking it because I've either learned through that experience and grown musically or I'm just bored and I'm like, oh, what's that? Um, so, yeah, I think I've never really thought of myself as having a specific sound that warrants me saying, oh, I need to use those people. But then there are certain people who, if I'm like in this project with Duncan, like I was writing stuff and I was just like, well, I, I know it needs Duncan. Like there was something about it that, that I did need that. Um, but then I'll work on other stuff which where I just can't imagine saxophone being a voice on it and so it doesn't even come into my head but mm. I think it also helps that I'm fortunate to like be a, across a load of very varied projects like week in week out like like super electronic film scores and then doing like, like yeah, last night I wrote a piece for like BBC Concert Orchestra with like an effects pedal in it like they were so totally different from anything I've ever done with jazz or like stuff mm. that I'm probably going to do next week or next month so it's it kind of whatever the work is in front of me forces me to think about who else I'm going to work with as well. So, how do you feel about being known as Ollie the Jazz Guy? Yeah, well, <laughs> you did you did say you did say earlier back then I was just a jazz drummer. Is that like a derogatory term to you? Uh, now, yeah, or? no, I I know. I mean, I mean, absolutely no disrespect at all. I mean, jazz drums particularly is always my like my my first yeah. love, as it were. But I think I always, I mean, I'm sure you guys know hundreds of drummer jokes and like. <laughs> I've, I, it wasn't that drummer jokes would upset me, but it was like, people would always be like, oh, you're just a jazz drummer, you don't know. And I'd be like, well, actually, like, I worked my ass off to learn about harmony. And like, that's, that really interests me. And so I think I, I don't know, I, it, for me, drums, particularly drums as an, as an instrument, rather than jazz drums, it's always been like a vehicle for me to get into music because it was just, I always played loads of instruments, but that was the instrument that for some reason I picked mm-hmm. up quicker than others and like was able to play professionally. Like at, I think I did my first gig when I was wow. like 14 or something and then like professional gig rather than just like school sure. concert or whatever. Um, and so I always saw it as my way into music, but it was always then 
like five percent of what I loved about music like there were so many other things that I wanted to do so for me it feels like jazz drums will always be something I'll do and something I love but it was also my gateway to this wider musical world where I only know like one percent of yeah. what I'm supposed to know and there's so much like room to grow um so you so yeah I don't you basically just said fuck you of, and composed entire records by yourself yeah <laughs> well, like the whole, the whole. I think I told this to Kieran already, but um, I the only reason I started writing music at all. Well, I should go back a bit. I mean, I wrote like I was in like a punk rock band when I was at school, ska punk. I used to like play guitar a little bit and write punk songs. But apart from that, I didn't write any music. And then I went to music college to do jazz drums at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. And I was very happy being a side man in people's bands, maybe doing a little bit of arranging. But like, I never thought about composition. I don't think we even had composition classes. Mm. And then I, uh, while I was there in my second year out of four, I got, I started getting all these headaches that went on for like a year and just got progressively worse and never like ebbed and flowed. Mm. And then eventually I had an MRI scan and then I got a phone call from the surgeon, from this brain surgeon the next day being like, you have a rare brain malformation. You have to have surgery at the end of the week. So I had to drop everything I did my end of year exam I had 24 hours before I was going to the hospital so I just asked my head of jazz if I could do it quickly then which I did so I could pass the year and then I had to take at that point I think five weeks I was in and out of hospital and then over the next like six years I was in and out of various operations but that first point I was like in the you know like you're at uni you're excited you're playing music and then suddenly everything was dropped away I didn't know whether like if they hadn't have caught this thing I would be completely paralyzed I didn't know like realistically whether I was going to be able to move my hands like what was happening day to day I couldn't do anything musical and I was just stuck there in this hospital bed like not knowing where my life was going I had my laptop and I had like paper and a pen and I just started to like write music a friend of mine who was a trumpet player at the time called me up and he was like oh I was hoping you'd kind of like help me write the music for my end of year or whatever so I was like yeah I'll, fuck it I'll just write a piece of music for your end of year recital so I wrote this jazz piece and I was like oh that was that was kind of huh. fun and creative well I can't actually play the drums so I wrote another one and then I was in and out of hospital so much and so whenever I was by a piano I'd just go and like at home I'd just go and play something write it down and then at the end of this like year of my life I had all the like 11 tracks or whatever and I was like this actually is an album of like kind of chronicling this really weird yeah. point in my life so then that's how I met all these guys who were then in my band for 10 years. They were just people I'd known on the jazz scene and done jam sessions with or friends or people who I'd always wanted to work with and just called them up and said, let's let's get into the studio and, and just do this. I'd love to have you on the band. And then we ended up touring for like, yeah, on and off for 10 years and doing multiple records. But um, I would never have even thought about shifting towards composition or kind of like discovering my love for it if I hadn't have been forced to because I just needed to do something like with my hands with my creative energy otherwise I was just going to go crazy wow so what so what's your what's your relationship with that music now because obviously it's come from something terrifying yeah it's funny though because I I never saw it as me trying to get out my negative emotions or even trying to I never really thought of it as trying to capture a particular thing when I was writing it it would just happen to be the music that I was feeling at that time. So it was inadvertently, I guess, the story of that time, but I wasn't sure. writing it to be that. So I don't, whilst I hear those songs and remember that time, I don't ever think like negative thoughts about it. Mm. In a weird way, it was writing the album like saved me <laughs> to like, wow. to actually have something positive to, to focus on. And then also, you know, I had this album, which I only recorded because I was like, I might as well, it's the right amount of songs. And yeah. then it was kind of by accident when I started trying to book gigs for it because I was a nobody at that point. I had like no press, no 
music apart from this one that I just recorded. And I, it was only as I started to put gigs that I realized actually like it's quite an interesting story for mm. to, to kind of get people to come to a gig. So not only was it a creative out kind of savior thing for me, but also it was the start of my career because it was the thing that kind of launched me as this is a bit different. And I just met Quincy Jones like just before I went into hospital. And so I had this one quote from Quincy, which was obviously amazingly helpful. So then it was, I kind of got a bit of a unique identity at that point as the kind of young, young emerging drummer um, with a slightly different kind of more unique story. So yeah, it was, it was like a happy accident that all that all worked out and it kind of propelled everything. So when I listen back to it, I just think of all the happy times really. I was gonna say, how many artists do you think have a quote from Quincy Jones uh, to put out (laughs) in their, in their first gig emails? Please book me. I know. You're trying to get your first gig. I, yeah, I've got a demo and a quote from Quincy Jones. Can I play the Bull and Vic? Yeah. No, I was, it's interesting the chronology of that because I obviously look, looking over your like career thus far, I thought that had happened sort of separately. Like I thought he had, he had reacted to to the music that came as a result of what happened, you know? No, what was really funny was we, so the reason I met him was cause he, when I was in Wales, he did some like genealogy program or something and they found out he was a quarter Welsh. So his granddad wow. was, was a Jones. So then my college really cleverly were like, oh, why don't you come to like graduation and you can get like an honorary doctorate and we'll introduce you to people. And he Genius. like thought that was amazing. So he, we came and they, my head of jazz said like, oh, we need someone to meet him at his hotel like you know just say hello and then bring him back to college and then there's going to be this master class and would I like to do it how fucking nervous like, did you feel when you were asked well, that you know what like the, my first instinct was like I don't know if either, any of you have ever spent any time in Wales but like I I am through <laughs> my through my surname I am a bit Welsh because Howell's a very common Welsh name and uh-huh. as is Jones so like she said like Quincy Jones but she didn't say like you know the Quincy Jones she just said Quincy Jones and I was thinking like that's probably like Barry Jones's brother, who was a set designer, Doctor <laughs> Who, but then she was like, "No, it's Quincy Jones." But I don't know. I, for some reason, I wasn't. I wasn't nervous. I was just like, obviously, super excited. And I actually now I know more of his back catalogue. But back then, mm-hmm. I thought of Quincy Jones as like, "Holy shit, that's like Frank Sinatra's like big band arranger." Like it was his big band work mm-hmm. that I knew because I was obsessed with that as a kid. Right. Obviously, most people just think like, "Oh, Michael Jackson or whatever or film scores." Yeah. And now I know all of that and stuff. But um, yeah. So then when I met him at his hotel, within the first five minutes, we were talking about like jazz people that we liked and the big band records. And he, I think he was so shocked this like kind of long-haired little like well, white Welsh boy was like talking to him about all these people that he grew up with and knew and listened to and then we walked into this like work this huge tent that my college has set up with like 300 chairs set up BBC Wales cameras and just a stage at the front so I like walked in with Quincy a bit like kind of like bride and groom processing in <laughs> like he sits at the front I just keep walking sit on the drum kit and then we just had to play and I did this like big drum open drum solo and then he kind of took me to one side afterwards and was like you're gonna hang out with me like let's let's chat and then we spent like 48 hours pretty much inseparable and then he like flew me out to new york and oh, went to oh. in la went to montreal but the weirdest thing was that this was all like before anything happened with my brain surgery so when i i was kind of planning to spend some more time in la with him and i had to email him and his manager adam and say like really sorry i'm going through this brain thing but quincy's had brain surgeries and aneurysms himself and he knows exactly what is all that that's like so me saying that actually I think brought us much closer together because he really understood what I was about to go through um and so he was just like amazingly sweet and supportive and then 
obviously when I had recorded the music, I sent it over to him and he helped again with that. And eventually then years down the line, he opened this jazz club in Dubai um, and then asked me to be like the opening artist in residence there. So I took my band and we did three months wow. playing like all my original music in this like ridiculously cool Q's jazz club. Uh, with like you know signed we are the world scores up on the wall and it was just, and Quincy <laughs> came over and like we had yeah like a week of just partying up in Dubai together it was uh it's I've, uh, yeah I mean I still look back now and don't really believe that it's the same person that I used to listen to and he's just so cool. down to earth and humble and kind and like it's uh it's yeah it's like one of those life-affirming moments when wow. you get to spend time it's with them so filmic yeah <laughs> unbelievable yeah it's, yeah, it's that, hard to yeah. sort of separate someone from their like aura of their work when they're at a certain level isn't it Al but also oh. he's such he's like the perfect example of how no matter how far you get into the musical universe like there's just no excuse for any ego or like mm. any any sort of narcissistic feelings at all like Quincy I always tell people like Quincy would spend the same amount of time talking to like some doorman at the hotel opening the door for him as he would to like Frank Sinatra or like, you know, like mm. Paul McCartney. He's just like, he has so much time and so much like warmth and love for everybody that I, whenever I hear a story about an artist with an ego or being a diva or whatever, I'm just like, what, why? There's, there's just no reason for that. If someone like Quincy can be as cool as that, there's no reason for you to kick up a fuss that you haven't got your like purple M&Ms. Code in the Clouds version of that little moment of being in front of someone of such a, of high esteem was we were playing a gig well, we were uh, sound checking for a gig in Oxford. Oh. And we I'm did... sorry, I've just remembered this and my stomach's <laughs> hurting. Well, yeah, well, so, that, so you've had your example with Quincy Jones and basically went probably about as well as it could have. Personal <laughs> connections, career-defining yeah. moments. We decided in front of Nigel Godrich to, during the sound check, when he was at the board as well. So like, we could have been exposed to him, shown our best side of ourselves. We were feeling a bit giddy, yeah. a bit giddy, a bit silly. So we did this awful, mortifying blues jam. Oh, but, yeah. And I think jung, amongst jung, ourselves, jung, 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 jung. Yeah, and we were like <laughs> doing all the most generic stuff. And the, the joke amongst us was like, how long can we do this? Just pissing everyone in this room off. <laughs> and it turns out it's Nigel Godrich there. <laughs> and that was our, that was yeah. our, that was our that starting was how, point. Yeah, so, but, so, you know, it's also, it's inconceivable. It's like a thing of dreams. You know, the sound guy for this gig in Oxford hadn't turned up and Nigel oh Godrich God. happened to be downstairs <laughs> and kindly offered to help oh. us sound check. And so that's time for a three note blues jam, guys. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, so I mean, maybe if he was, if he was looking to work with a novelty act, whatever, maybe you would have liked him. <laughs> yeah. Wrong time, wrong place. Yeah, well, he definitely didn't go back and tell Johnny Greenwood about us. About us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were flown absolutely nowhere as a result of that. <laughs> so uh, while we're talking about embarrassing ourselves, you uh, obviously lied to Quincy about your favourite band. You did, I bet you didn't tell him about your favourite punk rock band when you were a no, kid. No, I didn't. That's probably true. I mean, <laughs> I was like a diehard, like no effects less than jake i like oh, i wow. thought i could skateboard but i couldn't like oh I had yeah. Really, like long <laughs> hair down to my shoulder i was hey. a real like weird because i had this side where i would listen to like jazz from the 1960s whilst then the next day listening to like you know rancid or whatever like it was yeah. i was this weird juxtaposition of like i don't really belong anywhere <laughs> like i'm just completely again it's like my short musical attention so where were I you listen to that where were you picking the jazz up from was it your friends listening to the punk rock music because we were all of that age and then 
was you know what i don't really remember where i i mean that's such a contrast it, isn't it it's, it's it very simple three chord palette power chord music into mm. jazz I think like <laughs> yeah i know that so with like so my first ever instrument i played was the piano because like we had this like lovely old piano at home um and i had piano lessons for like a couple of months when i was about six or seven and like the guy who my parents got in who was local happened to be a jazz pianist and he knew i was like an overexcited hyper little six-year-old who didn't want to learn how to read music or like learn how to do anything i just mm. wanted to like play so he would teach me these little things which i later learned were like little jazz licks or like little chord progressions so i was playing and like you know stuff like the pink panther i was like seven years old just oh. like loving this jazz harmony and not really knowing it so then as i started to like get to secondary school and stuff i'd be just hearing stuff and be like oh that sounds familiar and i don't i didn't know why and i happened to have like a music teacher at school who was uh he was just like this amazing like jazz double bass player music teacher who just like had no time for anybody who didn't want to do anything about music like any kids who were in the class just messing around he would literally just not give them time of day just you can go and sit in the corner and just play with the dj button on the key <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then he had this side that was like if you want to learn about like jazz harmony i'll teach you about modes so then we happen to have like the perfect combination of like a jazz sextet in our in our year group which was like we're, we're in the middle of like south oxfordshire like there's no reason why we would happen to have the exact combination with this with the like the teacher as the double bass player so every week we just started like meet up after school and learning like a new jazz standard and then we eventually he was like oh we can play at this wedding and like at the time i was like oh my god like 30 quid like this is amazing <laughs> yeah and um and i did the first jazz gig and then from there I started to like just get more interested in it and he would like say like oh you should check out this record so I guess I have him to really thank for that for that initial push into it and then I kind of just went off on my own and did a bit of a deep dive into the vaults of any jazz record I could find. It's, yeah it's funny the sort of narrative that you have and it's reflected so directly in in your work then as a result of it like maybe then years later kind of collected experiences together or like with the with the first album being written yeah. kind of out of necessity as you say which which I think is kind of um for any piece of music an element of realism like that like not just being inspired by which is a good thing too but actually this a necessity as a result of something so it really is about that event yeah totally I just, I just, I, yeah, it seems like all of your work, you can, you can very sort of consciously track it and it's, and it's formation. It's funny because I, I never plan what I'm about to do or have any knowledge of why I'm doing things. My like usual rule is like, if it sounds fun, I'll do it. And I will say, yes, I can do something. If I don't, if someone says, can you write for orchestra? I go, yeah, of course I can. And then I'll work out afterwards. So oh, I, there's oh, never man. like any real thoughts <laughs> what I'm doing rather than gut instinct of like, this feels like the right move for me. But then you like kind of analyze it afterwards, I suppose, or, or find its place, its context. Yeah, I guess later. you kind of just trust that you are, your gut is choosing the right project or the right like musical idea for a reason. And so just like, just go with it and see where that journey takes you and not try and, I've never really been one to plan like very far in ahead. Like I'll, I'll have long-term goals, but they'll be so vague that it, I kind of allowing allowing my life to kind of dictate itself where it wants to go and like I mean I never thought I'd write for write for an orchestra or like write for film that was never something even when I was like 25 that was on the horizon it was always like something I'd love to do but thought I could never do it and then the opportunity came up for me to start doing short films doing advert music whatever and then 
I was like, oh, this is this is like amazing. This this like has all the elements of music that I love. Like I get to just wing it. Uh, I get to like work for a picture. I get to play all the instruments I can think of, make weird sounds, maybe work with like an orchestra or other musicians and nobody else seems to know what they're doing and they're just kind of like making it up as they go along. And it's like the thing that you do and you just make it work. Um, and I've always like, I've been one of those annoying people that really loves like pressure <laughs> with work. Mm. Like I used to love sight reading big band charts and stuff. Like I just loved it. I loved that pressure where like, if you, if you're, if you get it wrong, it's a big deal. Mm. Like there's like 400 people in this theater. And like, if you hit that like snare drum hit at the wrong place, everyone's going to know. Like if you're playing like a Glenn Miller song and there's like a really mm. sudden hit, they're like all of these old people have known for like decades and decades. Yeah. And, you that up. and so the same thing with like, as it gets more and more, I love that pressure of like, you've only got like four or five weeks to do this whole film or, or like, I don't know. There's just something that like I live, I like living on the edge. And again, I think it's that being pushed outside of your comfort zone all the time. I think that's what like really gets my creative juices going. What's your relationship with the, uh, you know, with, with, with the jazz fans? Like, I mean, obviously you consider yourself one because jazz is, jazz mm. is, well, to me, it's a real genre that like, there's a real reverence for like the traditions of jazz. Uh, so where do you mm. stand with that? Do you find, cause I mean, cause for me personally, I mean, I like jazz, but uh, I think because of the traditions and because of its complexities, I think it can be quite alienating to just, you know, the casual listener. Totally, totally, yeah. I, I get that. And a lot of my friends who aren't, either aren't musicians or aren't jazz musicians will say, like, they really struggle to listen to jazz records, but, like, when they see it live, they kind of get it. And mm. I think it's a bit like like listening to this orchestra yesterday like when you listen if you're if you don't know anything about classical music which is me <laughs> but you listen to like some amazing orchestral piece like I'm just in awe of it and like I'm in I'm in that moment but like I don't have to really understand it or or kind of analyze it and I think I think with pop music a lot of the time particularly people it's so accessible people do get it they get it and they understand it straight away so then it takes like a slightly different mindset to just like allow it to almost kind of wash over you mm. but jazz is one of those genres it's a bit like Again, when I say pop music, like I hate any term for any genre because there are so many sects <laughs> within course. jazz. Yeah, yeah, um, so like there are the like super purists who will only play the stuff from like the 50s and mm. that's, you know, that's fine. And I I love playing that more traditional stuff like that 1960s, just like swing when you're really mm. in the pocket, there's like this amazing feeling that washes over you. But I've also loved playing like odd time signatures and slightly more contemporary stuff where you, and then I've been in projects which is like completely free improvisation. So there's no structure, there's no chords, there's no melody. It's just like you have 10 minutes on stage, just do something. Yeah. But then there's also, so I, I never really felt particularly like I belonged to any one of those because I enjoyed them all. Like the music from my jazz records probably sits in the kind of contemporary, slightly some odd time signatures. It's quite melodic as well. So it's not like super out there and it's a bit more accessible, but I, I don't like feeling settled in any space. Mm. So for me, it was after I'd done a year or so touring that music, I was like, this is not interesting anymore. This is old. And I always think mm. like, if you, you look at the greats, like John Coltrane or like Miles Davis, you mm. know, if they were still alive, even like 20 years after they were, they passed away or 10 years, they'd be doing something so outrageously beyond the last yeah. thing they did. Like, and they would probably, John Coltrane would probably listen back to Love Supreme now and be like, this is, this is terrible. I wish I was doing this because they were the sort of people that constantly innovated. So I feel yeah. like I, I actually resonate more with that sensibility that's just like, whatever you just did was not good enough because the next thing is going to be even better because you're constantly learning. Sure. But then there's this kind of, there's this really interesting point in jazz, particularly UK jazz at the moment, which kind of, it started maybe four years ago 
where it was a slightly different sect of, of jazz, where it was there was a lot more emphasis on the groove and um, kind of like the the kind of Afrobeat influence and mm. just like influences that were outside of the traditional mainstream stuff, which was super exciting. And, and there, it's led to this kind of like jet, London jazz, particularly, but UK jazz being really cool and actually having a much younger audience and like a, you know, much more engaged audience. It's not like you sit down in a smoky room or you sit down and applaud at the end. Like these people are really going because they want to like, they want to dance, they want to have a party. Mm. And I love that. I think it's amazing for the UK jazz scene. It's amazing for the music scene. But also I, I know that that's not the music that I grew up listening to. And I have no, I've never had any interest in doing something just because everybody else is. So whilst I love listening to that music and like when I do jump into that scene and do a gig or two, like I have so much fun. I, I'm not going to try and like follow a trend for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy like with that particular element of it and with the very early traditional elements of jazz. I'm very happy just being a fan and letting those kind of play themselves out and even though maybe i don't fit anywhere in between necessarily in one Mm. box i'm happy kind of just meandering around and doing everything that that kind of feels good so yeah i don't really i don't really know where i fit in but i'm also very okay with not knowing where i fit in if that's if that makes sense well it's such a wide genre i mean it's Mm. it's you almost have to check each individual artist don't you if they say you you know you're saying i'm a i'm a jazz composer i'm a jazz drummer right but then you have to really listen to what you're doing to then think okay where on the spectrum does this lie totally. mm. you know it's why it's like why, why ken burns jazz is like 12 <laughs> hours long and, yeah exactly and, and like whatever 20 30 years old so then you you'd have yeah. to do another five or six hours to bring it up to date but actually like going going back to like streaming in terms of this like i think that's one thing that it's been it's one of the few things that's been really really good for is like because in before you had to answer to a certain venues type of fans so like you if you wanted to play at like i don't know ronnie scott's back in the day mm. i mean actually ronnie scott's has been pretty good at being very but you know a club that has a very specific audience that only likes traditional jazz let's say right. mm. or if you wanted to be in a record store and you needed to be in the jazz section jazz jazz section rather than the rock you really had limited options when you were doing some sort of thing that crossed over whereas now like some of the top Spotify playlists or Apple music playlists are like a mood, you know, or like, <laughs> yeah. so you don't, you can do anything you want. And it's, it's actually preferred like that. It's kind of jumping through these weird little passages and like loopholes into a different genre. So I think mm. it's, it's like, it's made everything so much more exciting because people are looking to be in between the lines or they just don't care. You don't need to appear on a jazz shelf and you don't like, there are audiences who like all sorts of music who will come and see it anymore. So it's like, I think it's a really interesting and exciting creative time in that respect for sure yeah i think i think for me like still one central theme of it is the kind of level of improvisation mm-hmm. you know that's like a, a, a core theme right like mm. so yeah and it's yeah it's it's like a really it's a special feeling because i always used to tell people like non-musician friends like when you're when you hit this point when you're improvising and everything kind of comes together in this moment there's this feeling inside you that I could only describe as like when you're playing Mario Kart and you get into the kind of rainbow zone. (laughs) (laughs) You get like your head and your body just like rise above you and you're just like on this crazy, and it might only last for like four bars before it like starts to move away to something else. But like, it's, it's like a high that I can't get from anything else. And that can, weirdly, you get that feeling whether you're improvising in some really straight ahead thing or whether you're in a free improv gig and like, you know, somebody is like screaming into a saxophone or whatever. It can it can happen in any of those moments, but when it does, it's just like this 
perfect little moment. So how improvised are improvisations in in jazz pieces in the sense that do you write into the piece oh imp- like saxophone improvisation here drum improvisation here so i mean it, it does vary a little bit but like i would say as a very um generic description most of the time you have what's called the head so like the, the melody um and then so if you're writing something new like a new piece you'd write in the chords and the lines for like let's say the trumpet and saxophone that's all very intricately written. I mean, the piano chords, you just write the chord sequence. So you wouldn't write, necess- you could write this voicing of this chord, but you're more likely to just say like, it's like B flat seven for a little bit and then whatever. And then there's the section of improvisation. So most of the time you write a separate section of chords for us all to improvise over, or you'll improvise over the same chord sequence as the melody of the, the head. And that's about as much instruction as you usually give somebody. They have the chord sequence, so we're all following the same harmony and like time signature or whatever. But otherwise, then you have the head at the end is like the, the tail of the tune, you know, the, the, the melody out. So that space in between is there are no rules. There's no pre-described thing usually. There's no like set length usually for how long it would be or even like sometimes order of soloists. You just go with it and it naturally kind of concludes. And then you just look around and like somebody will step forward or like they'll they'll kind of take the initiative to take the next thing on and like quite often especially in older jazz it will go i don't know saxophone piano trumpet whatever and then at the end they'll either be a bass solo or a drum solo for some reason drum solos and bass solos always kind of end the solo section um but usually it's it's even when i'm soloing like a drum solo i'm hearing the chord sequence in my head the entire time i'm i'm essentially treating it like a melodic solo so all the rest of the band know that like if I'm just doing one time round the head, it's going to be, I don't know, let's say 64 bars or whatever, but we don't need to count the bars because we're all hearing, even though it's just drums playing, we're all hearing that chord sequence underneath as if I'm playing the melody. So quite often jazz drummers will like quote bits of the melody in their playing rhythmically or just like a little figure that comes up. So there is the chance for the improvisation to just go completely wrong as well as the moments yeah. where it goes completely brilliantly. <laughs> and it, it quite often does, but it always just, it's that old thing of like, oh, it's only jazz. Like, you just you can just find a way back in like it's it's there's a freedom there there's it doesn't there's nothing that can really go wrong like if if let's say i'm drum soloing and then i have like a mind slip and i'm like oh i I don't know where i am in the form now it'll be fine all i'll do is like quote a bit of the melody and rhythmically and then everyone knows oh okay he's here now whatever um or if somebody gets lost in like a saxophone player's playing and then he loses where he's in the chord sequence he can just step back for a second listen to everybody else and then be like oh i'm here and jump back in i mean obviously as you're starting off and learning about jazz i do remember many many wrong moments <laughs> there from myself and the people i was playing with but like again it's just kind of it's just all right like you say most people don't really listen to jazz in an analytical way anyway so they're just hearing oh that person's improvising and that sounds jazzy so to get away with anything <laughs> but as you go on you just like sometimes i remember with my bands like we would if if we were playing a song and i was doing a drum solo and it was all like very metronomic and like we're in seven eight or whatever i'm playing along but then i just feel like you know what i need to take this out of time and a bit floaty i would just slow it down go like really atmospheric out of time loads of like weird sound on the drums and then at some point when i feel like it i'll bring back in that seven four seven eight groove or whatever and then everyone's like oh okay and then you just use eye contact or kind of telekinesis i don't know to just be like yeah okay we're going back to the melody here so it all kind of works out and actually i like it when it's less planned 
like I don't I wouldn't like to be in a band where it's like you should solo for just 16 bars and then we're all going to stop here for a bar and then we'll do this like it seems jazz is the wrong music to do that in my opinion anyway but man this uh it's been great lovely well for Steve and I it's been lovely to meet you <laughs> yeah. uh for Kieran I imagine it's been basically normal yeah yeah if, if, if anything <laughs> underwhelming yeah <laughs> So that was Ollie. He's a nice guy. I can't believe that story about his the whole brain surgery stuff. That's pretty intense. That is like, intense, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't handle talking about surgery things very well. But <laughs> it's almost like some kind of like music equivalent of like Frida Kahlo story or something. Where he's like, you can imagine him just like laying there in bed, his mind just whirring, he's got nothing else to do, and just sort of discovering all this talent that he has it's amazing it's yeah. amazing that, that then, and that then results in you know this this great album he sort of had that urgency to create it's it's really interesting as Steve said in the interview it's super filmic yeah yeah like, that's that's a story totally I'd, I'd go see it well because often that sort of thing that happens in a film you don't believe it as a character trait about someone mm. like oh I couldn't do this sort of art so I did this sort of art instead it's just mm. a proper like core fundamental thing about creative people I suppose Yeah, they just like have I mean, to if it, get something out if it does get turned into a film we'll write the soundtrack uh, <laughs> I, I, imagine, I imagine he'll do it because he'll be better at it uh, but K- Kieran you, uh, you're working with him at the moment what's he like to work with because I'm, I'm, I remember when um, uh, when I've been in the room with super talented musicians like that it's been quite intimidating <laughs> yeah so uh this, the two composers I'm working with, uh, Ollie being one of them, and and Tom Hodge as well, mm. like, oh my god, it's just, it's very intimidating. They're just, yeah. I mean, I know nothing about music. That's the problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm true. just guessing. It I'm, is. So, when you've got two people who are talking about uh, the key the song is in and the direction the song should move in, and these notes complement these notes. No, it's not for me. I mean, <laughs> generally, if if Listeners, I mean, uh, yeah, Kieran's Kieran's path in music has has not been conventional. I mean, if you're um, generally you learn the difference between an E and an A minor uh, before <laughs> signing a record contract as a guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> Just guess what if, if it sounds good, play it. I suppose, especially for collaboration, right? I think it helps if you if you understand music to collaborate with someone is a lot easier. Especially if they do, like you're saying. Like if yeah. someone's saying to you, oh, we're going to do a you know, song in the key of E, and Kieran just thinks to himself, his mind just goes blank, he just hears... Well, that's, that's, yeah. that's where the intimidation and the, the, I feel the pressure comes in. But still blag it, just blag it. Now we're on the wind down. We've hit, we've hit the crescendo, Kieran. <laughs> but now I want to know, as we're settling in, we're just, we're just getting ready to turn the album off. Talk to me about the Beatles, mate. Distortion yeah. pedal off. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah that's basically that's the post rock trick isn't it turn off the distortion pedal the song will end in three minutes <laughs> yeah once the delay has finally died out uh, so annoyingly Joe I would have listened to the playlist I listened to him once <laughs> annoyingly as per, your, as per your command thank you uh, I hate to say you run a tight ship but you do uh, but honestly uh, I was actually a bit annoyed with myself and you all at the same time why? I'm hearing a lot of because annoyed. We, we don't generally positive about anything. 
about this? Uh, well, I was positive about all but three of the songs on the playlist. Wow, oh, amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, that's that's got to be the first question then. What were the three you didn't like, mate? So again, it's not that I didn't. So I have my reasonings for not liking them, but I don't really know uh-huh. what they are. However, that's okay. what, hey, that's that's music, isn't it? There's a lot of the the mute. I'm really annoyed at you guys, by the way, <laughs> after oh, listening to you're this, annoyed, this playlist. Yeah, I'm genuinely, genuinely frustrated because okay. the orchestration throughout this playlist is incredible. And none of you mm. lot even think of writing our, this kind of these kinds of things into our music. <laughs> ever. So you're annoyed at us because we're not as good as the Beatles. Is that why no, I'm no, taking... No. Well, cause I, well, I've also read that it wasn't all of their ideas. No, no. So no, I'm not no, going to no. give I'm not going to give them all credit. Uh, <laughs> no, they had a, they had a great producer. I mean, Ringo obviously being the best member, the Thomas the Tank Engine narration series. Of course, he's uh, the most talented guy in the band. Yeah. So the three songs that I wasn't I, I wasn't too keen on, but mm-hmm. there was still a lot of the music within those songs that I did really dig, uh, mm-hmm. and it was Fall on the Hill. Yes. Uh, across the universe. Okay. And the song because. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So you're now no longer one of those moody post-rock bastards with their hood up who says, "I don't really like the Beatles." <laughs> no, but honestly, like songs like songs like like "Long, Long, Long," for example, ah, just banger. absolutely, just just yeah, just totally great playlist, Joe. Totally fit my taste. Thanks, mate. Excellent. Oh, but so I imagine, nice. I imagine, I do imagine though that there's a lot of Beatles that I probably wouldn't be too keen on. Well, the good thing is there is a lot of Beatles for you to now go back there, and there is a discover, lot and you're going to find stuff you like. Now, would you call yourself a fan of the Beatles now? I'm a fan of nine Beatles songs. Out, out of how many? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's probably around 250, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah, but, but you're just starting out, mate, on your journey of Beatles but discovery. But the, th- the thing that's cool, the thing that's cool, Kieran, is you because the Beatles are so... There's there's a, there's a lot of it out there, and they're so well documented that you can just find loads of the rare studio cuts. Because I didn't include all include all uh, stuff from the studio albums. A lot of it was like outtakes and stuff. So there's loads of really interesting stuff that you could explore. You could just get a bunch of like just the orchestration from Beatles records. I imagine you'll yeah, love I mean, that. Yeah, the orchestration was brilliant. A real real orchestration on a record. It's just mm. yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, George Martin is someone you should uh, look into. He's an interest. He was an interesting dude um, and a great producer. But okay, so what's next? So that's that's that. We're now we're, we're drawing a line Beatles under that. Well, yeah. no more. I think no more forcing Kieran. We're putting the, the putting some data on it as 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 I prefer. What are you saying? Okay, nine yeah. nine out was it twelve tracks? The twelve nine out of twelve. Seventy five percent. That's a first. That's pretty good. A first class. Yeah. Honours for you, Joe. V A on. So right. So what's next? So who's who's getting the next playlist? Well, I remember when we spoke about it last time. Jack requested mm. a Nine Inch Nails playlist. Oh yes, mm. please. So yes, I'm happy please. to uh, to give that a shot. I'm excited about that because I need I need educating on that because obviously he's such a huge artist with so many fans. Yeah. And I, I've heard obviously quite a few songs, but I've never sat there and listened to a Nine Inch Nails album or a playlist. I just need someone to tell me where to start. Again, like the Beatles, massive back catalogue, spanning mm. back to like 1989, I think. So, and I'm also a yeah, big fan a... of his soundtrack work already. So it was like more recent mm. stuff. So I'd love to hear like you know 
how that formed. I, do you know what? Yeah, I want to listen to this because he, because I also am not that bothered by Nine Inch Nails. I remember being at Reading Festival years ago, um, when I was age appropriate to be at uh, Reading <laughs> Festival, and I was in the I was in the comedy tent while Nine Inch Nails were on, but they were so loud it was like it was pointless being in the comedy tent. So I went out and watched them, and I remember being impressed, but I've also never since gone back. Obviously, I know Hurt. Because I think they're. Cash. I think they're one yeah. of those. Uh, one of those artists that definitely has two sides. Where you've got uh, the rock band, but mm. then you've also got the composer, which is like the composer in him. Uh, mm. And I think if you listen to the playlist, you'll hear a lot of influence with the stuff that I've been writing for our new mm-hmm. record. So okay, I because think I, mean, I think there's some of it you'll definitely like. I mean, how would you describe early Nine Inch Nails? It's, it's, I think that's the reason why I've never got into it. Is I, th- I see it as this kind of industrial like goth it's exactly what I've I never think, got yeah. into goth or industrial music yeah <laughs> people coined it as industrial because he was one of the first industrial artists but also like the sincerity who cares about genres mate also the, like the sincerity of like li- like her the sincerity of the lyrics feels so like 90s like, I've always preferred this kind of like abstract lyricism which I think like Radiohead really just made popular you know like post Kid A but like when it or post I suppose before that OK Computer but like when lyrics are kind of sincere I always feel this sort of like cringy awkwardness even if it's like good I've got a negative association with that sincerity I remember I was working when I was working as a teenager in a DIY shop (laughs) Mm. and there was like this party event like in the forecourt of the place and it was like a sort of family thing with stalls and stuff trying to bring people in and the manager just to sort of mess with me requested Hurt to be played right. by the DJ who didn't know what it was but requested it under my name That's and the funny. DJ announced it as oh Stephen has asked for us to play this at, at this family party that is a really <laughs> funny burn but you played that the whole really thing funny. I I know what you mean though about the sincerity of lyrics there are certain artists that I can only like for example if you take like Olivia Rodrigo, she's like the biggest artist in the world at the moment. Uh, I quite like her music, but I'm also aware that if the exact same songs sung by someone ten years older, I wouldn't be buying into it. I'd be taking it as cynical and horrible. Yeah. But because it's like a, a teenage girl, I believe it. Same with like snail mail. Like when snail mail sings like I'll never love anyone else, it's like I can accept that you mean that. Yeah. Because, because you're like 19 18. Or something, yeah. And and it's like and you genuinely feel it, but I wouldn't be buying that from Taylor Swift. Do you know? But what there I mean? are a whole bunch of yeah. artists that we must all like that we wouldn't ever play to each other that we would have listened to when we were teenagers that we'd still go back to. But mm. it's too that's too we know it's too cringy to play to each other. Actually, we know yeah. we get bullied for it. You know what? The uh, the interview with Ollie reminded me of this, but about six months ago, for some reason, I went into like a vortex of like what I used to listen to when I was a kid, and I, I listened to Less Than Jake for about an hour. <laughs> Whoa! Just like remind, but it's just, but it's just like the memories it brings back. It's like it's fun just to sit there and listen to it, even though listen to it now, I'm like, oh my god, this is awful. But it's just, I'll still listen to it. Yeah, I've done that. Get in touch with the show if you wish to. Um, info at codesintheclouds.net. We will be back next Tuesday. Um, hang on, Joe. How do I get in contact with us if we're on? If I want to go through Instagram, say. 
Oh, for Instagram, that uh, the the at handle. I think Steve knows that, does he? Codes clouds. Ooh, at codes clouds. Uh, Kieran, why don't you deliver some sweet, sweet Twitter information for us? Uh, also at codes clouds. That's incredibly handy. Uh, we're also still plugging away with Facebook. We're so accessible. Uh, you know, yeah, very, anyone look, could very just accessible. find out about us if they wanted. Uh, and I think, and Steve's number, have you got a German number or should I give out the English one? Uh, well, I actually do have a German number I've got to give you guys later, but we'll do okay. that. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy later. Looking, for, looking forward That's to new. that. Um, and then to take us out, uh, guys, from, from, um, from Oregon me to Oregon you... <laughs> We'll see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the Paper Crane. Good night. That was (laughs) a (laughs) wrap, wasn't it?